chapter 5, particularly this morning, verse 19, and it gives to us the title, What is the Value of Property? That's our working title this morning, What is the Value of Property? Our previous messages have been titled similarly, What is the Value of Human Life? When we covered, You Shall Not Murder. And what is the value of marriage? When we covered, you shall not commit adultery. And so today, in the same vein, we are covering the eighth commandment, which is you shall not steal. Thus far, what we have seen in the Ten Commandments, after we have pivoted and shifted to a focus on human relationships following our relationship with God, is respect to our parents. Honor your father and your mother. Respect for life, you shall not murder, and of course, respect for marriage, you shall not commit adultery. And now this morning, church, we're looking at this point, we should respect other people's property. Found in this commandment, you shall not steal. Regardless of whether or not it is material property that is under discussion. We'll talk about that more later. Suffice it to say now that everyone who knows there's, uh, excuse me, everyone knows there's a deficit in respect of other people's property today. And there are a variety of reasons for this. For one, many people who are damaging property or stealing property today don't own property themselves. It's quite simple to damage somebody else's property when you've never worked hard enough to own something yourself. But, on the other hand, we also see on the same issue a lack of justice that is being executed against those who are violating the property that belongs to someone else. People break in and steal. People destroy because justice is not being executed. With that in our background, let's focus on our title today again. What is the value of property by addressing two questions? What is stealing, first? And second, what is the antidote to stealing? So let's begin with our first point this morning, which is this. What is stealing? If you look back again at the text, quite simply, just so that you can focus your eyes on it, as I read, it says in verse 19, and you shall not steal. It's a simple command that comes to us from Deuteronomy 5:19. But what exactly, my question is, is stealing? Is it a bit more complicated than we think? And if it is a bit more complicated than we think, how so? The last couple of weeks, we've looked deeply into the topics that have been described by the commandments. And this week will be no exception, so let me invite you to consider a few things. First, there are linguistic considerations when it comes to Deuteronomy 5.19, linguistic considerations. There are a variety of words in the Hebrew Old Testament that are used to translate stealing. The word that's used here in Deuteronomy 5.19 is a word that can be used for stealing someone else's property, as you might expect, but it's also used in broader circumstances too. For example, it's used to describe kidnapping. And it's also described to or, or used to describe stealing intangibles from people, things like their dignity, their self-respect, or their rights. 
As you can see from this information, when God's word says to you and to me, you shall not steal, it isn't simply talking about one child stealing another child's toy. It's a little more in-depth than that. It's a little more complicated than that. This is a serious command with depth and breadth, and it needs to be considered by you and me like this. Am I stealing from someone in my life? Am I stealing what belongs to them? And of course, I realize that if you're sitting in this room this morning, it's very unlikely that you're a career criminal. But go with me for a moment and follow this train of thought. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from them to whom it is due when it is in your power to give it. You see, I think the breadth and the depth of the command is a little deeper and wider than we think. It isn't just about not stealing a toy or a car or a television that doesn't belong to you. I think it also is telling us that when it is in your power to give someone respect and you fail to give it, you're robbing them. Now, it's unlikely, I think, that you have been led to consider this aspect of the command, but this is a biblical consideration, linguistically speaking. Secondly, there is the spirit of the law. There is the linguistical consideration, but also the spirit of the law. In other words, when God says, you shall not steal, it's especially concerned with various forms of cheating. Not just what we consider stealing on the surface, but cheating. And we steal when we take what doesn't belong to us, what we haven't worked for, what we haven't paid for, what we haven't earned. An example of this can be found when we take intellectual property that doesn't belong to us without ascribing credit where it is due. I think this is why the Bible ties stealing and lying together so often. For example, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11, it says, you shall not steal, there's the command, and then it continues and says, and you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie. You see, I, I think those things are tied together because lying and stealing so often overlap. For example, recently it was discovered that a pastor had preached a series of sermons, nearly 160 sermons in total, that were ripped from the beginning to the end, introduction, conclusion, illustrations, absolutely everything from another pastor. Not just points, not just headings, but right down to the personal illustrations that leads to this fact, the personal illustrations that were written by the pastor who authored the title, titles and sermons were appropriate. But when someone else rips the entire sermon, not only are you borrowing, quote unquote, intellectual property that doesn't belong to you, but when you even use the illustrations... Now you're just being dishonest. See, what we're talking about is not just stealing. We're talking about lying. 
Again, it doesn't belong to us. We haven't worked for it. We haven't paid for it. And we haven't earned it. But we pass it off like it's our own. This is stealing. This is lying. We deal with this in the academic arena on a regular basis as well. It's called plagiarism. If you do not cite your sources, you automatically fail. And in most colleges, with one referral, you are expelled. Because in an academic arena, there is an expectation of honesty. And if you take work that doesn't belong to you and you steal it, you're effectively lying and saying that it was your own. The Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical teaching through history, says an interesting thing. He who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. If there's believable truth in this maxim, then stealing can be tied to fatherlessness too. And that would certainly explain why the predominant median age of crime is below 30. Every time a man or woman leaves his or her child behind for a different life, the evidence is the consequences echo into the subsequent decades. There's no excusing that. So when we make decisions that do not honor the path that God has called us to walk and to live, the consequences don't only affect us, they affect those around us to such an extent that many of the people today, statistically speaking, are doing what they're doing, breaking the commandments of God, because their father and their mother were not home to teach them the difference between right and wrong. If this is the course that we're on in 2023, where will we be in 2033? Well, to help answer that question, I want to lead you to our second point, which is this. What is the antidote to stealing? We've talked about what stealing is. Let's talk now about the antidote. Again, stealing is a commandment that we aren't to break. So what is the antidote to that commandment? In other words, if God's law, which reflects himself, his character, and his expectations of those who are his creation, those commands are to not steal, then how can we avoid breaking that commandment? There are a handful of things that individually and together comprise the antidote to stealing. I'm going to share some of them with you now. I've got five for you to think about. First, the antidote to stealing is contentment. It's the first thing I want to share with you. The antidote to stealing is contentment. One of the main reasons that people steal is simply because they're dissatisfied with their lives. They see something that someone else has. They don't have it. They want it. They take it. It's not complicated math. They are discontent. It isn't that they need anything, and even if they did, there are ways to get what one's needs, amen? But thieves aren't stealing because they need. Thieves are stealing because they want. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 30 and 31 identify with this issue. It's a historical issue. It is not a new thing. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry, it says. But if he is caught, 
He will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. You see, humanly speaking, we can understand if someone steals bread when they're hungry because they don't have the means to get the bread. But wrong is wrong is right and right is right. What we should be doing is meeting each other's needs. But what we see people stealing today are 60-inch televisions, shoes, makeup, cologne, iPhones. Church, these are not needs. This is an issue of contentment. Are we content or not? If we were content with what God had given us and what our work had achieved, then we wouldn't steal because contentment would guide us. I love this proverb, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. This is the wise man saying to God in prayer, as it were, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full, and deny you, and say, who's the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal, see that? And profane the name of my God. What's the prayer of the wise man? Give me what I need. Don't give me so much that I start relying on material things rather than on the faith that I should be placing on you. And don't allow poverty to strike me, God, because I don't want to be in poverty and disrespect you because I don't have enough. God, give me what I need. Not a wrong prayer to pray, by the way. Nothing wrong with praying. God, give me what I need, but please see the attitude with which the prayer is being made. God, give me what I need, and I'll be content. Give me what I need, and I'll be content. Second, the antidote to stealing is good theology. The antidote to stealing is good theology. And what I mean by that is this. If our theology is good, if we possess a high knowledge of God and his providence and his grace and his ability to choose and bless some people with what they have, while he chooses to bless us with what we have, then we won't feel compelled to steal. What I mean by that is trust and faith, church. A belief in God's sovereign providence to give to one person what he decides to give to them and to give to other people what he decides to give to them. Rather than shaking our fist at God and saying, well, if you had given me the exact same thing that you gave to everybody else, I wouldn't have to steal. That's bad theology. Good theology leads you to this conclusion. I trust you, God, as the sovereign God who gives to everyone how he decides. John Calvin says it this way. We must consider that what every man possesses has not come to him by mere chance but by the distribution of a supreme Lord of all. God has a plan for your life, and it's different from mine. God has a plan for my life, and it's different from yours. Good theology dictates to you not to have faith in what I possess, but to have faith in the God who decided to give to you your possessions. And if your mind and faith is orientated like that, you will not be compelled to steal Good theology tells us not to steal because it tells us that God is in control of our lives, that he blesses us according to his will, 
and plan. Third, the antidote to stealing is work. People steal because they want what hard work produces. But they don't want to engage in the work itself. They want the reward without the responsibility. This is the same scenario for those who cheat, as we mentioned before, who perform academic stealing because they want the good grades on a test, but they don't want to do their assignments or study for the test itself. They want what the good students do, but they don't want to have to do what the good students have done. There's no difference between these two things, church. The byproducts of education cannot be stolen. Just like the self-respect, dignity, and lessons learned through the hard work that is performed cannot be stolen by those or from those who have done the work. We can steal from our employer. We go to work, but we don't actually work. We take longer breaks than we're supposed to. We take longer lunch hours than we're supposed to. We procrastinate when the due date of a project comes up because we don't want to work hard. There's no difference between what we consider stealing and that. That is stealing. If you're getting paid to do a job and in laziness you refuse to do the job, you're stealing. It's not complicated. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, the Word of God says this. Paul says, For even when we were with you, Paul says to these Christians, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work, how? Quietly. And to earn who's living? Their own living. We always reach a point of difficulty, contention, as a church when it comes to issues like this because we all have people close to us in need. And we want to help people in need. That is part of what we ought to do as a Christian community and as a church. But if you have need because you won't work, you're on your own. If you have every bill imaginable, but you refuse to handle your responsibilities, and therefore you inquire of the church to fill the gap, that's another issue. We have a generous church, and we have generous deacons who oversee a benevolent fund that is particularly managed by them so that when people within our congregation and friends of our congregation have a need, we can discuss it and make a decision to meet those needs. But what's Paul saying here? That anybody who has a need should be able to get what they want from the church? No, on the contrary. What Paul says here is simple. If you have a need because you won't work, you're going to have that need for a long, long time. There's no excuse when it comes to need as a result of laziness. Hard work is an antidote to stealing. Fourth, the antidote to stealing is law. The antidote to stealing is law. In Psalm 40, verse 8, 
God's word says, I delight to do your will, O my God, because your law is written in my heart. One of the reasons the law was given to us was to hamper sin and crime. It teaches us to respect morals, right and wrong, and the real consequences of immoral actions. While some offenses in the Ten Commandments carry a penalty of capital punishment, like murder, stealing doesn't. Instead, the punishment associated with stealing is found in Leviticus chapter 6. It says, if someone steals, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. You see, if you have stolen from somebody and God convicts you, you come to a realization that what you've been doing is wrong. Not only are you supposed to repay what you took, but you're supposed to put a fifth on top of it because you did wrong. But that's not all. This leads us to our final point, which is the last antidote of stealing is repentance and forgiveness. There are indispensable things to health and healing spiritually. And repentance and forgiveness are among those things that are indispensable. Stealing negatively affects lives. It affects our community, and it affects the relationship that we have with God. It's not as simple as saying, I can steal what I want because I have decided that I need it. No, God's word says you are not to steal. You are to handle and manage your life in such a way that you don't place yourself in a need that compels you to steal. Stealing negatively affects our lives, our community, our church, our society, and of course, spiritually, our relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul actually says that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? We whitewash everything, but the apostle Paul says that if you're a thief, you're not going to heaven. That's simple. You say, well, I'm a Christian. No, Christians don't steal. You don't get to do both. There's this, there's this method right now in our society where they keep sticking adjectives before the word Christian. I'm this kind of Christian. I'm this kind of Christian. I'm that kind of Christian. No, it doesn't work like that. You don't get to say I'm this kind of Christian and go through the Bible and find the verses that speak against your adjective and say, well, that was then and this is now. We've got to commit to doing good. And we've got to commit to living a life that honors God and respects his commands because thieves don't go to heaven. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may give something to share with anyone in need. You see, Christianity doesn't provide a neutral ground for you. God's law says you shall not steal. And if you don't steal, well, that's great. You're not breaking the law, but you're not actually fulfilling Christianity. Christianity does not say that if you stop stealing, you're in the good. No, Christianity says you shall not steal because it's wrong. Step one. Step two, get a job. Work with your own hands. 
in such a way that you satisfy by the work of your own hands your needs. And step three, you need to work so much that you not only provide for your own needs, but you can help those who have need. You see, being a Christian is not this easy fairy tale life where everyone around me exists for me. No. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. And if our Lord lived a life and modeled a life of service, then we too should be living a life of service. Some of us have been living a selfish, self-centered life, taking it easy, making every simple decision we can because our family has put a net around us that has ensured to some degree our success. The reality of the matter is God's word says, take responsibility for your life. Work hard. Work hard to such an extent that you not only provide for your own needs, but you also have something to give to those who have need. To close, let me say this. The Ten Commandments almost seem condescending sometimes, almost patronizing when we read them, because they are so concise and so clear. But there's weight in what they're saying and teaching. And not only is there weight in what they're saying and teaching, they're speaking to our negative tendencies as humans. They're speaking to our sin. They're also teaching us who God is and that we need his mercy and forgiveness because we can't fulfill his law. Now, because we can't fulfill his law and because we're talking about stealing today, let me draw a line of illustration to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, which says this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, it says that Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And that is to say, when Jesus talked about the fact that he was equal with God, he essentially was saying, that's not a position I have to steal. Jesus did not steal his position as the second person of the Trinity. And as the second person of the Trinity, the righteousness that we require is found in him because he's not like God. He's not close to God. He is God. And it's not robbery for him to say so. It's not robbery for him to identify as God's son. He says, I am God's son. That is who I am. And because he is God's son, church, he has what is required to satisfy what is needful for us to live in eternity with God. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. That Jesus died once. How often? Once. The righteous, that is Jesus, for the unrighteous, that is us. So that he could bring us to God. Church, the good news of the gospel is this. God has sent his son to die, be buried, and raised again for sinners like you and me. That's the good news of the gospel. 
while we're running around stealing televisions and perfume and credit. Jesus lived a perfect life, a righteous life, as the second person of the Trinity who does not consider that position something that he has to steal so that he being righteous could bring us unrighteous people to his Father with forgiveness. But the prerequisite of that is repentance. Repentance is a prerequisite to a relationship with God, which is to say this. When we read the Ten Commandments, we don't go, you shall not murder. Well, I've never killed anybody. Jesus says, well, but if you hate somebody in your heart, you're already guilty of murder because murder starts with hate. Oh, okay, well, that's inconvenient. Okay, well, that's fine. Okay, maybe I'm a murderer, but I've never committed adultery. Jesus says, no, no, the same thing applies. If you lust after someone in your heart, You've already committed adultery in your mind. Okay, well, okay, well, fine, all right. So I'm a killer and an adulterer, but I've never stolen. Well, we've already covered that, haven't we? We all, each and every day, steal in a variety of ways. It might not be a television. We might not be guilty of a B&E, but we rob people of their respect, their credit, acknowledgement, etc., etc., etc. And when we sit at the law, we read over the law, it's not telling us that we're good, church. It's telling us that we're not good. It's not telling us that we're good. It's telling us that God is good. And if we would ever successfully have a relationship with him, the first acknowledgement that we must have is not Aren't you glad you made me, God? But you are good and I am not. You are right and I am wrong. You are light and I am darkness. And I acknowledge today that the only reason you can have fellowship with me is because your son, who didn't have to steal his position, has provided a way. That's the gospel. Jesus died once, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he could bring us to God. And how do we go to God? By our righteousness? No, no, we don't have righteousness. That's why Jesus did what he did. Well, well, I'm going to clean up my life, Joe. I'm going to clean up my life. And when I clean up my life and I get all my junk straight, then I'm going to start coming to church and being a Christian. Oh, you're going to be a lousy Christian. Because Christians don't come to church righteous. This is a hospital for sick people, amen? Jesus said, I've not come to call the righteous, but I've called the sinners to repentance. Because because that was a joke, by the way, on Jesus' part. There aren't anybody who's righteous. You know what we do every single Lord's Day when we come together? We take an empty cup and we raise it up and we say, God, more. More, give me your grace. I need more. Because I can't earn it, I can't achieve it, and I don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, God, meet me where I am and satisfy me. That's when God is glorified. When we say, in all of our emptiness and need, all that I have, all that I want, and all that is in my future is by the grace of God.